Hello and welcome to Double Reel, the monthly magazine-style podcast for the discerning film nerd. My name's James Adamson and I'm a film nerd with a love of great movies and great stories from the film world. Joining me as always is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you for the warm welcome. It's good to be back. Our regular episode 30 will be out on the 25th as normal, but today we're bringing you a special episode. We're very excited to have with us an actor, producer and stunt coordinator who has a new film coming out and has agreed to join us to tell you, our lovely audience, all about it. Jamie Chambers. Welcome, sir. Hey, James and James. How are you doing? Very good. Great, mate. Thank you. Nice to have you on board. Uh, yeah, we, absolute pleasure to be here. Yeah, good. We were just uh, we were just saying uh, before we started uh, having we thought having a guest on would add some variety, given it's always James and James on the pod. But adding a Jamie isn't all that much of a difference. <laughs> just add Baby to the confusion. Steps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you'll only be allowed guests that begin with J yeah, from now on. That's right. Yeah. So, Jamie, introduce yourself to our audience. Tell us tell us a bit about yourself before we uh, before we start talking about your new project. So yeah, uh, well, hi, I'm Jamie Chambers. Um, I'm an actor, producer, stunt performer based in London. Um, been working in film and TV for about 12 years now. Um, I've just finished as the lead actor in a action drama based in Essex, which is coming out at the end of October. Um, and then, yeah, uh, just um, <laughs> just going around talking about that, talking about uh, experiences in film and TV and saw your guys podcast and I was like I have to come on and actually chat to these guys so um yeah that's that's why I'm here and, yeah, we are, um, yeah we are delighted and flattered to have you on <laughs> so so, so t- tell us about the project that's coming out at the end of October tell what's it called yeah so the project at the end of October is Morris Men which is an action drama um based in and around Essex it's to do with um a former squaddy suffering from PTSD who comes back to his hometown sees that it's riddled with crime and drug dealers and seeks out his long lost girlfriend um turns out that she's part of this relatively mysterious morris dancing troupe and i realize what that sounds like um (laughs) and as it turns out that it's all a cover for a secret group of assassins that um go from town to town trying to clean up the mess that has been left from drug lords and crime and all those sort of things, all the negative things that we have in society. Um, He ends up saving her life and becomes part of these mysterious assassins. There's so many ridiculous action set pieces. Um, uh, The talent involved has been insane as well. Uh, Rosso Hennessy from Game of Thrones, John Camplin from Harry Potter, to name just two of the top cast. Um, We also have... uh, the current um, Lucha champion and Ragnarok star, Ed Gamestar, um, who has just been incredible. He's just finished at Edinburgh Fringe. Um, so we've got some wrestlers, we've got some fantastic action performers. Fantastic. And um, Eloise Lavelle Anderson is the co-lead. She just finished on Villain with Craig Fairbrass, um, which is out on Netflix at the moment. So yeah, um, it's, it's quite a fantastic project and was a it became like a labour of love to sort of get it over the finish line. Yeah, I can imagine. You see, Morris Dancing Secret Assassins, I, I'm already intrigued enough to, to <laughs> want to watch this. I was I was interested, I looked at the poster on IMDB for this, and the the tagline is Kingsman Meets the Crow. So are there I mean you've told you've told us an action drama, you've told us about this. Are there any other surprises around, you know, around this if if you know the the reference to the crow sort of sort of um yeah, sort of whetted um... my interest a little bit? I mean, it's it's been a challenge for me. Um, I actually went and spoke to a lot of my squaddy mates and bootneck friends that um, 
that have had experiences of coming back home um, and it, trying to integrate back into society. Um, and for me, it, it also sort of draws a lot of um, comparisons with Kick-Ass as well, because I, I, I felt um, it's one guy going up against ridiculous odds and then trying to overcome, but also yeah. keep, keeping hold of um, that little semblance of what you used to be and not yeah. being completely lost. Um, and uh, it's quite a grandiose to sort of say, the crow and kingsman and um i i, I kind of want to keep it quite grounded because it is very um for want of a better phrase like it's very this is england as well because it's, yeah, yeah. it's a very british tale um and it it highlights a lot of things especially to do with, like essex as well um we actually shot in a little town called jaywick in essex and it is officially and it was it was quite sad to see um because i've actually gone back and done some work in jaywick afterwards um it's the poorest place in the country wow um and yeah uh, i think it was a ridiculous percentage of people that were below the poverty line so I, i've sort of gone back and uh myself and the director of the film went back and we've done some how to cook on a budget um how to how to make things last longer all those sort of things to sort of, sort of yeah. pay things back to society a little bit and um sort of really sort of reach out to the local community as well so we're trying to put that on the map a little bit and really sort of um like like i say pay it forward um i i'm quite lucky that um sort of growing up in west london i've, I've sort of had a relatively safe and I don't want to say sheltered but um certainly not to the point of you know live, living under the poverty line and things like that so yeah there's was, always someone worse weird. off than you right yeah exactly and i i i didn't want that to be like something that was taken advantage of i wanted it to be highlighted and sort of um whatever can be done I, I i come from a very different background to film and tv and for me it was a case of how can we highlight this and pay it forward and help with maybe infrastructure and things like that? It, it yeah. sounds like a very big task for a, a very a very humble film to do, but um, yeah, that that was a key part of it for sure. Yeah, well, it's 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 something that happens frequently, isn't it? You find someone that's interesting to film, and then when you see what's going on there, you feel like, well, you know, what can you do to pay back a little bit, right? Hundred percent. And the yeah, thing yeah. is, I've been quite lucky in that I've I've been around a lot of film sets and done a lot of projects quite literally across the globe um, from Abu Dhabi to Washington, um, France, Germany. And it, it was interesting that something so close to home would be the thing where it was like, oh, this is this is incredibly different. I mean, Abu Dhabi for me was one of the safest places I've ever been yeah. ever. And the difference was huge. Um, whereas... You, you sort of look close to home and you look at London, you look at even even sort of going up north and past the Watford Gap because, I mean, no one wants to go past the Watford Gap, really. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so... Um, it, should, it, should, it, we, it, should, we should have said at the start, James is from Glasgow and I'm from Sunderland. Oh, my, 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 my sincere condolences to oh. both of you. <laughs> I've, I've actually... Um, I've just finished two films up in Scotland. I, I loved every second of it. Um, I was coordinating on a film that was uh, just near John O'Groats and um i also did a horror film um in inverness and i loved oh wow that is, fun inverness is, that is fun inverness man. was stunning i mean it was cold and the wind and the rain went sideways yeah um which <laughs> it was it was it was quite amazing because the, the film we were doing is sort of like um wrong turn right it's like uh organ harvesting and those sort of things a very american film done in a very english well i say english a very scottish location and yeah. um 
that that was that was a fun challenge because I got, I got to do an American accent, which is always a, a fun thing to do. Um, my character yeah. changed four times before we started filming, and it sort of ended up this mismatch of characters. And but that 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 was working with some really yeah. talented people. Um, and Inverness, just a beautiful location. Yeah, yeah, it's, stun- it's stunning up there. My my mum's from sort of slightly west of there, right, over in, in Malig, so we're sort of quite familiar with the area. It's funny what you were saying about your character changing four times and all of that. I don't know if you ever read the um, uh, one of the actors in Alien Three, um, where he played eighty five in it, Ralph. Yes, I can't remember his name. Yeah, um, uh, he uh, he wrote this really interesting diary about his time in um, in the film and how he's like midway through the production. You know, his character kind of changes. He's, uh, you know, he sort of he start preparing for one character and he's got to go through it the next time. And it's sort of, I guess, rolling with the punches is something that you just have to kind of. Uh, yeah, for uh, sure. And I with. actually did read about this. It. Um, uh, Ralph Brown, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's um, right. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Alien 3 was a horrendous mess of a film anyway, um, because Sigourney Weaver said that she didn't want to come back and all those sort of elements to it. And you had to kill her character off. And um I think uh, Rid- Ridley Scott has said that he wants to remake three and four anyway. Um, well, that would be interesting. He hates both of them. Yeah, I think given that, um, I mean, Michael Bain and Sigourney Weaver to actually play the characters post-Aliens would have been incredible anyway. Um, yeah. I-, I think they did newt um, dirty in that as well. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, even, even down to the first day of filming, you, you never... Are 100% certain of the character you're going to play until cameras roll and then something gets a little bit more solidified. It's always sort of, mm. you've got that moment where things can change and be like, no, no, we're actually going to um, change your character. He's now 75 years old. Uh, we've got the prosthetics coming over. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's, he's got a limp and we're putting you in chain mail. Um, and, and all those sort of things sort of like go back and forth. But yeah. um, I, I kind of like the challenge of sort of... Um, until you hear action, everything is still up in the air. Yeah, you, yeah. The audience will never believe that we didn't kind of script that and line it up. You've just done an amazing preview, Jamie, of uh, one of the big features on our next main, main episode, which is Second Chance Cinema, where I'm going to be talking about you know, redoing Alien 3 to get it right. So you, thank you yes. very much for that completely unprompted preview and plug for our next episode. I'm very much like you guys. I'm a massive film buff and a total yeah. film geek. And I, I read a lot about how the studio interference with Alien 3 and Alien 4 yeah. um, like just just destroyed everything that they were trying to put together. Because um, I, I felt Alien was the monster in the dark film that everyone wanted. It's very much horror sci-fi. And then Aliens, it sort of lent more towards the action elements. Um, it's actually, for me, one of the scariest scenes in any film I've ever seen was... Um, there was absolutely no horror involved. And it's um, the two cannons in the two um, hallways behind the locked doors and the alien, the Xenos coming towards the group and you just hear the gunfire. And I think in the special edition, yeah, yeah, it's a special edition, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that, that scene of just the, um, the, the ammunition just going down and down and down is possibly one of the most terrifying things. Knowing that it's coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, And that even tops the, um, they're inside the room bit. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's, like, it's like Hitchcock said, the suspense doesn't come from the explosion, it comes from waiting for the explosion. Yes, 
Yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. that. And um, I, mean, I think Aliens did that right, um, whereas yeah, Alien I, 3 did it wrong. I think the problem they had with Alien 3 was that the kind of the best possible sequel to Alien landed in their lap. Yeah. They, they, because there'd been a dispute with Walter Hill, one of the writers, producers of the first film. He'd been, he'd been almost ready to sue the, the the film company over over the profits from the first film, which delayed any sequel. So by the time they did get a sequel, someone had had lots of time to think about the right kind of sequel they were going to do. James Cameron came along with exactly the right vision for the sequel, and because it fell in their lap, they thought they could, oh, we'll just snap our fingers and we'll get a, a part three that'll be as good as that. And no, not nearly as much thought was put into what they were going to do for the next movie, and they they jumped from idea to idea. And by the time they made yeah. the film, poor old David Fincher, he deserves a medal for actually putting something workable up on screen. Oh, I he, think so. He picked and, up something that had gone completely tits up before he'd even got there. Oh, it was it, it's an ugly mismatch of ideas. Um, yeah. none of it really makes a lot of sense. Um, from even down to, I mean, if you get the setting wrong, the whole film falls flat anyway. Yeah. Yep. And uh, the waste of Charles Dance as well. Um, yeah. you, a, a, a character actor like that in a role where he's not allowed to play with it, he he can't really develop it. Mm. Um, and he, even down to not knowing exact... I think where Alien did so well, you knew how many crew there was, you knew how many people were getting picked off, whereas Alien 3, you, you'd already sort of... like, Well, how many guys are there? How many people are here? How many people are getting picked off? And who, who's left? And yeah. It all got very ugly very quickly. Yeah. Um, and that's not to mention the mess that is Alien Resurrection. <laughs> I was so disappointed. I wanted to see that <laughs> cinema. I was so disappointed. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I thought the, actions, the action elements were good. The underwater sequence was as well. But so much of it was just, oh, mm. we're doing this because it's... It's nostalgia bait rather than yeah. actually making a good film. Yeah. So hopefully, Morris Men wasn't as troubled a production as Alien Three. <laughs> it, it was. It was a lot more smooth sailing in terms of how we um, went from script to screen. Um, we were lucky in the fact that the locations we were given um, added so much character. And like I say, half half the thing with making a film is the setting that you're in. Um, and we we had a some of the brilliant towers in Essex that used to be watch out towers and they became like set pieces for a lot of the action pieces. Oh, very good. Um, so that, that in itself, it looked lived in, it looked like um, it, the characters came directly from those locations. A lot of the, um, the hotel sequences and um, some of the more visceral stuff. Uh, we, we had this amazing sequence that um, is the set piece action sequence. It goes on, ridiculous amount of time and the best way to sort of describe it is kind of like John Wick versus Cassian um, in the second John Wick film um, where you where you travel from the fight travels you from location to location to location um, yeah and we were given a pier in Essex with an old arcade and old um, merry uh, like sort of fairground rides and we were given carte blanche to do whatever we wanted on those rides, they were all working, all functioning. Um, myself and Ed Gamester have a set piece, um, which is quite incredible, on a waltzer going ten miles an hour. Um, so that, that that was something else, oh, and none good. of it was none, none of it was faked. So was one um, of you on a waltzer that was going really fast, and the other one was going much slower, frustratingly for the person <laughs> in it. That would have made it. That would have made it brilliant. Uh, <laughs> um, we 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 had a. Uh, the old school wooden elements of it so yeah. our footing was never 
quite certain so a lot of rehearsal time went into it um and then trying to avoid massive steel swiveling chairs was yeah. quite a big part of it because every time you caught one that was a bruise in the dead arm yeah um it was actually one of the first times in sort of my stunt action performance life where i did a gag and had to stop because i thought oh this is what a broken leg feels like oh um, shit I, I i i got german suplexed um off of one of the fairground rides and as i landed um all the nerves in my right leg turned off and i was like oh oh you're kidding um but there was no pain so i was like well, what's going on um and ed's ready he, he, like foaming at the mouth ready like a wolverine to, to carry on the sequence i went stop 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 stop, and sort of whispering under my breath i think broken my leg um and i'm sort of working my ankle inside my boot and i was like oh no no we're okay we're okay and then what had happened is as I'd suplexed over, I'd smashed the stanchion on the top of the waltzer and just given myself a dead leg. Dead, but dead leg. I, I thought the landing, I thought, oh, I've landed on my leg and I've snapped it in half. And, oh, oh God. no. Because <laughs> I'm quite lucky. I mean, touch wood. Um, uh, I've, I've thrown myself off a bridge. I've been hit by a car, um, been stabbed in the head and... You know, no, no real sort and of that, and that's just going to bones. Dagenham, right? Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah, that's just just as travelling to Essex. You know, I mean, getting through East London that's a daily yeah, yeah, occurrence. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I, I, but everything, the, the whole team around the production sort of really came together to make it um, as sort of fast flowing and as efficient as possible as well. Um, everyone had sort of a singular vision of how to get things done, and that that was, I mean. Dom Morgan, who sort of built the production from the ground up, he was the driving force behind the whole project. And you could tell that he had a very set vision of how to get things done. And he, it's mad to think that he had sort of 20 characters sort of living in his head that he sort of was like, well, this is what this character has to do while this is happening over here. And we had three yeah. fight sequences running at one time. And he was able to sort of master all of them and go, right, so we've done that. Now we shoot over here. We're going to get the drone coming afterwards. And we, we were really lucky because we had a, a 4K drone for sort of seven days of filming, which was unheard of at the time because this is almost sort of a year and a half ago now. Yeah. Um, and to have that as well and sort of raise that production level was just incredible. Did you have some COVID restrictions on filming, given that's when you So many, so many. <laughs> um I think film has been sort of it's a little bit little bit easier now. Um I was just on a Marvel production and you get tested two days before and then you get tested the morning. Um and it is it's relatively and I think with the Americans you just keep a mask on at all times. Um but our COVID restrictions, we had a COVID marshal and we had that sort of thing. Um but the the irony with film is that everyone's got a mask on and everyone's um sort of within the restrictions and then anyone who's performing on screen there's no masks you know yeah. you're, you're, you're in and around um a big fight we, scene we where you're well. breathing up each other's noses and stuff <laughs> yeah exactly and you're trying to put someone's head through a brick wall without sort of breathing in at the same time right, it sort yeah. of becomes difficult but yeah I, I think as a as an industry it's been hogtied a little bit by it and um it has become certainly part and parcel of being in film and tv but Equally, if you've got a good COVID marshal, it, it's it's relatively easy to do those sort of things. Are you allowed it's to say even... what Marvel production? <laughs> <laughs> not with the NDAs. I'm <laughs> excellent, excellent. <laughs> sorry, what, Jamie... I can, what I can say is it was reshoots. Very good, Jamie. Uh, sorry, James, you were going to say something. I was just going to say like COVID's not just affected the production, has it? Because um, 
I, th- I think it was Matt Damon was speaking recently about how they've comp- like they're much more cautious with how they make films now because um, before you would you would gamble on um, the box office sales and then the DVD sales, but now everything's just put to streaming. So how's that? How has mm-hmm. COVID affected that more so? Yeah, with the whole, uh, especially at an in- as soon as possible. You're right. You're completely right because even at an indie level, um, you're reliant on at least hard copy, if not streaming. Um, I. I, I'm of the opinion that cinema chains and streaming need to at some point come together as a single entity, like uh, for one of a, for one of a better example, like Odeon at home or Cineworld at home, because I think HBO were ahead of their time trying to release um, films the same day in front rooms as they were cinema, because they're trying to gamble on the fact that you. The, the Netflix model of being too big to fail. So yeah. uh, I, I think in terms of that, and certainly with my sort of producer head on, um, hard copy died about 10 years ago. Um, oh, don't, t- don't tell my DVD collection that. <laughs> oh, my, my DVD collection of like three and a half thousand DVDs that I said was for research when it was really just a collection. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm banking on it coming back as a hipster thing like vinyl. Oh, I, I I would love that because uh, I was just um, I, I took my girlfriend up to Leeds and we went to Pixel, which is a, a retro bar where you can play like the old computer games um, uh, and all that like N64 and PS2 and stuff like that. And I, I was sort of banking on the fact that DVD will have that nostalgia factor of putting something into a DVD player. Although in saying that, I don't think anyone's bought a DVD player in the last sort of 10 years. Oh, no. um, it's all Xboxes and Playstations. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I I actually treated myself to a 4K Blu-ray player last year. Oh wow, that I mean that that's that's definitely pushing the boat out. <laughs> but um, in answer to your question, James, I, I think um, a lot of stuff is done on pre-sale now, um, and it's it's based around the idea that you've already sold part of the film. Um, certainly production companies and studios are more frugal with their money because. You, you can't necessarily put all your eggs in one basket that one film is going to um, even sort of take hold. If you release on a Marvel or a DC weekend, your film's dead regardless. It'll make 12 quid and that'll be the end of it. Um, <laughs> so I, I think a lot of things now is based around just getting it to a point where you can sell it based on the strength of the project alone um, and looking at the best possible streaming outlet. There, there, there is no real sort of... I would say that it's very hard for there to be a future for people to go and watch smaller indie films in cinema. I think that that idea of films like The Raid um, and your your smaller six million pound films just don't see. I say six million like it's a small amount. Yeah. Um, they just don't see cinema now um, yeah. because there's no way to make your money back. I mean, the, it sounds like the problem with HBO Max was that they didn't really have it all lined up. I mean, if, if they're going to yes. make a, a Batgirl film and then not release it because of corporate decisions over how their streaming service is going to be lined up. And if, um, I, got, I know this isn't kind of uh, HBO, but when, um, you know, Scarlett Johansson is like suing Disney Plus because yeah. releasing it on streaming had no, um, you know, cut off her, you know, box office options that, that yep, she had exactly in the contract. That. It's like, well, if, you, if you've if you got a streaming and box office strategy, you need to kind of agree that the people making it and starring in it, that's what you're going to do. You know, obviously revenue comes from streaming, so you have to tie it to that. It's like, because we're talking about like box office is kind of 
films that have lost money at the box. I mean, Waterworld is supposed to be this big flop, but but you know it made money because people kept yeah. on watching it. So films have a long life. So if you're gonna if you're gonna release it in different ways, you need to kind of have a lined up strategy on it, don't you? I, I think that's part of it is knowing what your strategy is. Um, yeah. I've I've been one of the biggest proponents and critics of Warner Brothers and their model for a while. Um, they seem to be throw everything at the wall, copy everyone else, and see what works. Yeah. Um, the fact that they're able to put in 150 million to a film that will not see the light of day um, shows a lack of faith and a lack of vision in yeah. what they're actually doing in the first place. Um, I I don't think they've thought through their cinematic strategy properly um certainly in terms of the standard that marvel have set for Mm -hmm. that and don't get me wrong i I think marvel phase four phase five is an absolute mess and a bit of a car crash um (laughs) even though you're certainly in terms of moon knight (laughs) she hulk captain marvel that definitely definitely a mess but dc and warner brothers have sort of gone we have to play catch up and we, we're just going to throw every single character without any sort of development or strategy and just see what happens. Yeah. Um, knowing full well that, uh, and Marvel did it with Black Widow, um, knowing full well that they could face huge losses. And I mean, Black Widow was still best part of a hundred million to be made, had some very good talent in it. And then yeah. it's in everyone's front room rather than in cinema screens. I, I don't think that film should be made anyway. Cause I, I, speaking as a geek and a bit of a sort of um purist when it comes to that i think if you've killed a character off the film before there is absolutely no point in doing her prequel the film after no they um, should they should have they should have given her a movie about 10 years earlier when she was yeah. like quite prominent in the avengers right yeah exactly that. So it felt I like think an afterthought the would have been yeah exactly um the time would have been around civil war um yeah the black widow film then but you, you all, all these characters and i do feel like they're backing up a little bit uh, in t- this is this is geek coming out now uh, with the no, you're, you've come thing. to the right place yeah <laughs> the scroll story is sort of allowing them to sort of back up a few things now um yeah. like characters that are dead aren't dead characters that have been written out aren't written out because they're all doubles or secret agents or yeah so uh, i certainly feel that that's the way things are going um i read the other day that tom cruise will be playing ultimate tony stark which Oh, would wow. be quite interesting. Um, so the idea of different actors playing the same character is quite a niche idea as well. Yeah, I mean, going back to release strategies, what what's the release strategy on uh, on Morris Men? Where's that so coming Mor- out? Morris Men. Um, so the world premiere is on the 29th of October, which is going to be a fantastic event. Um, again, we the production team are focused on having it in Essex. So um, again, sort of pumping the. Uh, it, it, the idea originally was to do Leicester Square and do a red carpet opening there, but then everyone does it in London. No one actually takes it back to where things were made. So the yeah. production team decided that doing it in Essex was the a better strategy. Um, they're making a full day event of it um, with live band, um, a Q&A session. So that sort of thing, it's very sort of open to the entire audience to get a feeling for how the film was made and to interact with the cast and crew after that as far as i understand it from the producer side of things it is going to be going to streaming um they they are very keen um with, with support from the bfi as well um they're very keen for it to go to netflix and or amazon yeah um 
it, it will go to highest bidder. I, I don't doubt that. You have to be quite mercenary about these yeah. things. But yeah, the idea is have a cinema release um, and then the idea is for it to go straight to streaming. Yeah. Well, we'll be looking out for it, obviously, because you've, you've, <laughs> you've piqued my interest with the Morris Dancing Assassins. And obviously, uh-huh. having spoken to you, it'd be nice to talk about it on the show. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it excited me because I, I joined the production in 2020. Um, and it was one of those where um, I was asked to do a self-tape by my agent. And I wasn't I wasn't really sort of thinking too much about it. I just like the idea of um, playing a squaddy character where you don't actually do any of the war stuff and yeah. you explore more the coming home side of things. And that to me was actually the really sort of interesting part of it. Um, the fact that I was going to get to do my my own stunts and my own choreography um, and involve a lot of stunties that I really enjoy working with was, again, a sort of really big factor in it. Um, and then sort of a year in and sort of going into pre-production and the sort of final stages before the first day of shooting and discussing character and script and really sort of being able to dismantle a character and sit down with the director and go, well, where are we going with this and how can we do it? And yeah. bringing together a cast that have been on some of the biggest sets as well. Um, that that was a challenge in itself. I mean, acting opposite Rosso Hennessy is one of the most daunting things I've ever done um, in terms of film because the the guy is an enigmatic presence and just everything that he does, there is a, a certain sort of depth and genuine sort of belief in that role. Um, and then to be opposite a real-life Death Eater in John Camplin was <laughs> yeah. something else as well. Again, the geek sort of comes out a little bit. and you, you, I, The first day John was on set, I the amount of Harry Potter questions that came out of my mouth was uh-huh. just ridiculous. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, Jamie, can we get to the filming? I was, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. I, I, I know why we're here. I, I remember. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, you sound like you've relished a production where you've been, you know, a prominent, you're you credited as producer on, on the film. And like you say, you've done the, you know, you, you're taking one of the lead roles and you, you, you know, doing the stunts and everything. You probably contrast that in your mind with the the huge opportunity of being in one of the big blockbuster productions where you've got a smaller role compared to these independent productions where you've got a like a you know more you know more you know prominent part to play in the whole thing i mean how does your experience differ on 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 the 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 big productions you've been on like star wars and and fury with brad pitt and all of that i've been really lucky um i I got to cut my teeth on some relatively high-end productions and that was really fun for me um i mean i was on fury from day one to rap and wow. that was months of production and it, it was right place right time um I, I come from a quite a sporting background so i was in for first day of boot camp um in and around a lot of the action performers and stunt guys for fury and then got talking with the the second ad who's an absolutely wonderful guy a guy called fraser fennel ball and he's an award-winning assistant director um and he said come down to pinewood we're doing previs so um i got to be in and around the studio setup where they were doing lighting checks on the tank they were doing um, prosthetic checks which was an incredible experience sort of just being sat in the makeup chair having all the scars put on having uh, brad pitt's um back scar um i had i was doing the makeup checks for that and then having my own character being involved with ben cook and sean button doing the stunts uh, one, one of my first ever stunt checks on fury was in front of david air 
and I had squibs put on me and then we had an explosion set up and David Ayer just stood there and went, yeah, that's cool, and walked off. And that, <laughs> yeah. and we, we'd all just been blown up and we were covered in soot and mud and fake blood everywhere. And he was like, yep, yeah, that works, and just walked off. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it gave me a, a fantastic perspective. Um, the same with Star Wars. I mean, the size of um disney and marvel productions now is just insane and the amount of people in every department um and i i never want to be sat in a trailer or um quietly just sort of scrolling on my phone i'll, I'll be sat next to the director or the second unit ad and just sort of going through and going, right what are you doing now how are you doing that what lens is that who's that guy over there what are you doing um how can i help what can i pick up um so the whole time it's it's been a case of learn the whole the whole industry and yeah. everyone's role um because i i don't care if i turn up early and i'm helping put mats out for the stunties or yeah. if i'm stood um in fact I, I i was stunt coordinating on a film up in scotland and um they were a grip short in the camera department so i was lugging tripods and sliders up and down in between sort of making sure people didn't get hit by a helicopter yeah and yeah you know, so for me um I relish the idea that my perspective came from seeing the big productions and the small indies and seeing how much of that can transfer across. And I always think it's incredible when you look at these low budget indies and how far they make one pound stretch yeah, yeah. as opposed to, you know, you can throw money at a problem and just it disappears. Whereas you've got to be a lot more creative the further down the pyramid you go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like that. it's a competitive industry. It's a very crowded market, and you, you've got to roll up your sleeves to do whatever you can to kind of be involved because you never know what... sounds like that's opened a few doors for you, right? 100%. Um, I, I, I came into this industry with no training, no contacts, not a clue what I was going to do. And sort of 11, 11 12 years ago... Um, watching Transporter with Jason Statham and then going, yes, I can do that. I don't know how, and I've never done it before, um, but phoned up, quit my job, and was like, right, what do I do now? Um, and it's been sort of my opinion that the more strings you have to your bow, the the, the more the more opportunities sort of come your way. Um, I never want to be doubled on a, on a film set, so whenever my character has the opportunity to um, fire a gun, fall off, Fall off, out of, fall out of a building, get hit by a car. I'm one. I'm 100 the first person to put my hand up and go, "Yep, I'll do that." Um, and w one of my biggest gags was a uh, 30 foot fall into water in a film in Milton Keynes, and um, uh, I'd done highboard diving um, in in sort of my younger years. But this was this was sort of a completely different kettle of fish because it had to look like my character was unconscious. So. I wasn't hitting the water perfectly with sort of my hands in the way to break the fall. It was hitting it sideways and yeah, making hurts, a huge right? splash. <laughs> yeah, it does, especially when you do it 10 times in a row. <laughs> but it, it's also allowed me to sort of understand what goes on behind the camera and yeah. understanding production and sales estimates and line production and script to screen and all those sort of things. And I, I love every part of it. I mean, being yeah. a geek helps because you, you, you always ask the question, how do I do that? When do you do that? What are you doing now? Um, it annoys every HOD I've ever worked with. But, um, <laughs> yeah. For me, it was like it, it gives it gives you the um, the sort of the dark arts and the um, sort of the unspoken rules of how to get things done. Yeah, 
I mean, the, the health of the industry, it, it's, you know, we've already talked about, you know, people are having to change their strategy and everything, and how they do things. It seems like, a, I mean, we're, 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 sort of, we're sort of big enthusiasts about film, you know, we're, you know, we're armchair fans on the outside. I mean, James and I write film scripts just because it's basically a hobby that we love doing and we send them off for script, you know, festivals and, and, nice. and, and you know, you know, hoping one day someone might like it. But 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 in the main, we're kind of watching from the outside, going, I wonder, I wonder, how, wonder what things are like on the inside. I wonder what what's going on in the, <laughs> you know, on a set. You know. Well, my girlfriend um, has to tell me to shut up when we're watching a film. Because, um, <laughs> like uh, I'll go, oh, so how they did that gag and what's happening yeah, here and yeah, yeah. Uh, like uh, they, I we just watched um, see how they run because I'm a huge Sam Rockwell fan. I yeah, he's, he's great. And he, oh, he's just amazing and. The the film is a genuine farce in the best way I can say yeah, like that. Like proper um, old fashioned, oh, like in and I out of bedroom it. doors, yeah. Yes, and there's a couple of really creative angles where I I had to think for a minute. How the hell did the how is the camera there? But they, they've closed that mirror and that and and I, I was talking out loud in the cinema and my missus was like, "Will you shut?" Up? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sort of giggling away to myself. And I mean, I I. I had the choice of going to see Bullet Train or see how they run, and I chose see how they run based on the fact that Sam Rockwell was in it. Yeah. Um. I, I'll still go and see Bullet Train because action films are like my guilty pleasure. Anyway, I mean, I've seen every Fast and Furious film, um, and any excuse to go and watch something get blown up. But it's, it was for me like enjoying something for the fact that it wasn't my normal go-to film to watch. Yeah, yeah. Well, as a as a, as a stunt performer you would watch someone like bullet train and you'd probably be watching you know how they can you ever see the join can you ever see can you ever see where they've so it's weird you say that um i was part of the stunt team and had a character on one shot with scott adkins yeah and um that film the idea is that it's very much like uh, uh 1917 um and that there is no you don't you can't see the joins between each thing and it all takes place in one hour and a half single shot um and it, it's it's fun when you sort of you watch a film and you go there's no cut there and they they've done that in one take um, yeah so it's becoming harder and harder to see that um yeah. the raid sort of set the standard oh a lot. yeah the, um that was an eye opener wasn't it james when i first massive. showed you that film yeah I mean, I absolutely loved what Gareth Davies did with that. Uh, Gareth Edwards did with that. Absolutely incredible. Um, so, yeah, when, when I sort of watch films like that, I, I sort of wait to see if they change camera angle because there's no way of selling that shot. Um, but, yeah, like, when I watch action films, I'm sort of also looking for <laughs> any of my mates that are in it, which yeah. happens more often than not. Um, but also, you sort of pick up little tricks of the trade and you go, oh, so that's what they're doing now. Okay. And then you go back to the gym and you start practicing that. Yeah. So, just funny, you, you talked about sort of potentially getting injured on set and that stunt you did on the waltzes where you got, gave yourself a dead leg. And <laughs> I, I remember James and I, we were discussed a lot the um, the incidents on, on Rust. Because I yes. think that, I mean, speak for yourself what you thought of it, but it, I think it shocked us. Mm -hmm. um, to hear like, wow, it's a, it's got it's a film with Alec Baldwin in, right? It, with you know, but it's so low budget that they seem to have, you know, not necessarily they're being accused of not having adequate safety measures in place and everything else for for the production they're doing. So, you know, questioning the quality of the firearms that they're using. I mean, what what's your 
I mean, what's been your experience of some of these sort of independent productions you've been on about stuff like that? I mean, did you recognise any of what happened in Rust from yeah. productions you were on? So, funny enough, uh, not funny enough, that's the wrong word, but um, weirdly, the last two films where I've been either action director or stunt coordinator have used firearms, and Rust happened in between those two um, films. So... I'm always of the opinion that it's it's not a, it's not necessarily the firearms fault. It's the person holding the firearms fault. Um, as far as rust goes, that is a, a, a poor standard of armorer and no safety regs being followed. Um, I don't believe that film needs live fire weapons ever. By live fire, I mean the ones that can fire blanks. Uh, yeah. I think you get the same amount of effort and the same amount of quality from using an airsoft with SFX as you would from using a blank fire gun. SFX are so cheap now. Um, I mean, uh, the the software that you just see on an Instagram advert where you can drag and drop gunfire and explosions proves the point that you don't need to do it. So um, the, the first one uh, that I was involved with quite closely was an execution scene in a hospital. And it was meant to be three blank fire shots Um uh, through a pillow and I, I i was i was sort of stood explaining it to everyone and saying it doesn't matter if it's blank fire that's still two foot of flame coming out the front of that gun um it will take an ear off it will take an eye out so i i'm i'm very safety conscious and in between every take yeah it was demag clear the breach look down and check every time also i checked the camera angles and i was like the actor doesn't need to be in this scene like if you're firing into a pillow, focus on the pillow and let the audience work it out for themselves. Yeah. Um, so a lot of safety stuff. Um, it, usually the most simple answer will be the best answer. Um, the same when we were passing weapons to talent on the film in Scotland, it was very much because it was a whodunit film. The gun changed hands several times. Every single time, it didn't matter if I knew that the gun was empty. I, in between every take, took the gun, demagged it, opened the breach checked it was still empty and then handed it back every time because rust is a perfect example of being essentially flippant with firearms and i i am a huge proponent that you just don't need real weapons in order to do film and tv we, we're at a point now where there are enough quality props there are enough quality um reproduction firearms and weapons certainly in terms of airsoft um I mean, the airsofts that we used on one shot were still actioning. Um, and we had a guy with a paintball gun that had little metal filings in it that did the sparks. So wherever you were firing, he was off camera firing these paintballs that had metal, like iron filament that made sparks on walls. So even then, we didn't need any sort of thing because we were doing it all with special effects. And yeah. as far as rust goes... My understanding is that those firearms were used that weekend as live fire. They were firing at um, uh, cans on a back lot somewhere. Um, so that that already raises questions of why there was live ammunition on a film set. And equally, if you're handed a weapon and you don't check the breach and you don't demag it, I, you are as culpable as the person who handed it to mm. you. Um, equally don't put crew in front of a firearm. Um, I'm not casting blame, but I certainly wouldn't have had my DOP and my director in front of the gun, even when you know full well that it's meant to be a blank fire. 
Um, is it like they've just got these old-fashioned ideas of 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 what they need to do on set? Because I mean, my my assumption about the, the the DOP and the the director being where they were was that they were looking through the camera to to see the shot. Yeah. But you know, people can be looking at a screen, can't they? They well, can that, be they can be exactly ten feet it. away looking at an iPad and and, and what see what I would the camera have done is um, a ballistic sheet up for safety purposes with the camera behind that, and then everyone looking at a different monitor. You you don't yeah. need to be you don't. I I, I get the uh, the purest element of um, being on the camera and adjusting as you go, but especially with firearms or action or explosions, um, safety first and go go check on the monitor go yeah. and adjust go check on the monitor um, it seems like so your arrogance was, doesn't sorry it seems yeah. like you've just been purely arrogant with it you know just thought let's, yeah. let's have some live ammunition on set and let's just you know we'll be fine it seems like they've just swaggered through that and it's i think quite so costly and and it's it's also that that thing of if you're going to be flippant with that thing that is 100 percent deadly there there is no sort of oh this this might be an issue it, it is a firearm it does fire ammunition you, you've already got a problem um and what what is the what was going through the armorer's mind to say it's okay to fire even a blank firing weapon uh, camera um so that it was a it was the perfect storm of things going wrong um and in saying that it has inspired a lot of productions to go we we just don't want to be the next rust yeah and we we don't want to be part of that and for every for everything that is bad about it and the loss of life it has at least from that standpoint raised standards elsewhere yeah, well, that's that's good to know. I mean, it's a shame that's what it took, but it, it often does, doesn't it? It's like when well, down, it, it, down your local high street, you, when you see they put a new crossing up, it's usually mm. because there's been an accident. It took that yeah. to get people to shift their arse, right? I mean, it also got me looking at the people around me and not just taking things at face value and yeah. checking other crew and HODs, not because they're necessarily bad at their job, but because you, you kind of want to go, well, your job affects my job. Um, yeah, yeah, that's how, how and health and safety takes, works, right? Yeah. Exactly that. And it only takes one person to pick up something and go, oh, this belongs in a gun. And then, I mean, magazines aren't hard to work. So that firearm then becomes loaded and you haven't checked it and then it ends up in someone else's hands and orders of magnitude of problem sort of happen from there. So it, it, it's not worth the issue of not checking. Yeah. Um, and it's, especially when we're talking... And I know this is film and TV and it's all meant to be make-believe, but when you're talking about people's lives and you're talking about that level of safety, it genuinely just isn't worth it. Yeah, yeah. Well, on to happier things, because yes, I please. see you've got a very busy IMDb uh, <laughs> coming up. There's like, it looks like about a dozen things scheduled to come out you know, post yep. Morris Men. T- tell, us, tell us something about some of the more interesting things that so, you're involved um, in on that. I'm really excited on the on the acting side about a film called Guinea Pig, um, where you play Hector. It says here. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm quite looking forward to that because I don't look like a Hector, so that's that. That would be the first thing. Um, that, yeah, I mean, that, I mean that, Hector could either be a Hispanic man, in which case we're in some dodgy <laughs> territory, or a really really posh English bloke. Well, that's where I think I'm going to have to go with it because yeah, yeah. Um, the, the the Hispanic angle just isn't going to sell when you're from West London. <laughs> that's right. Um, I mean, I, I've just got back from Greece, but my tan definitely isn't selling it that far. Yeah. Um, but guinea pig is going to be fun, and we're shooting in Europe, which again, because um, it's going to be a very Scandinavian-based film. Yeah. Um, and the the cast is from all over the world, which which is amazing in and of itself. Um, when I was reading the script, I loved the idea 
of the fact that it's dystopian so um, you can lean into a lot of things where you can have people playing characters that are already unhinged you don't necessarily need the justification um, and then on top of that the idea that everyone's out to kill everyone which for me especially when you've got an ensemble cast and there's nothing worse when you watch a film where there's a couple of key names and you know full well they're going to make it to the end of the film. Yeah, um, yeah, they've got I the like plot the armor idea. on. Yes, exactly that. And plot armor is one of the most annoying things ever. Whereas um, when you know full well, all right, I don't necessarily recognize these names. They're not household names. Anyone can die at any time. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. And I, I know that the script is being um, tidied up um, by a couple of other producers. So I'm sort of very keenly looking to see how far Hector gets into this before <laughs> <laughs> before someone puts him down hopefully in a big explosion so I'm looking oh, yeah, forward yeah. to that um, and then um, do, you, do you like having a good death scene? Oh I, I've got a death reel that's insane um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it seems to be like a caveat with all my with all my films that my character just doesn't make it to the end but um, I do like the idea of the either the really immediate sudden death where you do um, we like a, a drop in Schindler's List, yeah, or, yeah. or um, or I like the idea of like leaving a long trail of blood where you try to sort of pull your innards back in and all that sort yeah, of yeah. stuff, which is kind of cool. Um, I had a great one where uh, I got stabbed at the start of a battle, and the idea was is you had to play your character slowly bleeding out but still doing sword yeah, fighting, yeah. and that so that was really fun. Um, and uh, obviously that falling off a bridge and drowning, um, because drowning sequences it takes forever to do and. It only becomes longer when you're actually the character drowning. So, that... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I'm really looking forward to Guinea Pig. Um, Death Do Us Apart, I'm looking forward to, because uh, my first ever experience on a film set, and this is, yeah, 12 years ago, uh, was Cockneys versus Zombies. Oh, yes. Um, and a friend of mine at the time was like, okay, like you've made this decision. You're going to get into film and TV. They're looking for zombies on this film in East London. And I was like, all right, cool. Um, so I turned up, we, we actually did zombie training, which was possibly the most um, weird experience being taught how to shuffle. And this is pre-Walking Dead and things like that. So that was, these were very Romero zombies. Um, yeah. But that was cool because uh, that was my first experience with sugar glass as well. I got bottled um, uh, using fake props and my first experience of like um, falling over and getting hit. And I mean, I've, I've, I've done a lot of martial arts in my time, so sort of doing pratfalls and things like that was never a problem but death do us apart i actually get to play someone alive in a zombie film oh. um and I, i've been working because i'm a big scott adkins fan and he has a particular kick that he does in a lot of his films so i've been developing my own where i do a spinning 540 roundhouse kick oh very good um so that's sort of becoming like a recurring thing in a lot of my films so i'm really looking forward to that because i get to crash a taxi 540 um, what that's like almost two turns then basically it's almost two turns yeah so i basically cheat a sweep and yeah. i launch part of the sweep into a, a 360 so yeah. that that's a lot of fun um and i take a zombie's head off with that so oh, cool. i was i was super excited about that um yeah, and Jack, then, james uh, and i wrote a zombie script set in sunderland uh, sorry set in scotland as it goes and we we had i was gonna say kept, sunderland isn't that yeah, just a friday night yeah yeah, I know. Yeah, that's so. No, it was, set, it was set in Scotland, and we we were trying to keep coming up with uh, the most sort of inventive zombie deaths we could. I don't know if you Love have any favourites, James. Off from the script. Yeah. Um, the combine harvester, or the deep fat fryer. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Well, the thing is, we, we had we had to jettison the combine harvester. Well, 
Well, we had to tweak the Combine Harvester because Zombieland 2 came out and we were able to yep. come up with a different machine to do the same job as the Combine <laughs> Harvester. Uh, the deep fat fryer is something where we, we talked about and then we and we, and then we then didn't put it in. So, oh, we've got to put it back in. The deep fat fryer is, yep. is something we've got to that. do. That's very quintessentially Scottish as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that, the question that, is, that would someone really eat it after it's been deep fried? <laughs> that, I mean, it's, it's been difficult with like Zombieland and... Um, Oh, what's the computer game? Um, uh, well, I'm thinking think you're better on games than I am, James. Dead by Dawn, was Dead Rising? No, uh, Dead Rising, because they've had like four of them now. Um, and you get all the creative deaths with like um, chainsaws on um, chainsaws on poles or like mm -hmm. um, machine guns on shopping carts. And like everything is now, well, we've seen this before. We've seen this before yeah, in Zombieland yeah, yeah. when they had the kills of the week. It was like, yeah, well, now yeah, the just piano cheap. and everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just throwing in like extra ones, aren't they? Because I actually felt with Zombieland, they sort of lent into um, Left for Dead a little bit with like the types of zombie. Um, and I, I was. So I've been a bit of a gamer for a while and Left 4 Dead was one of those where types of zombie where you had smokers and um, hunters and boomers and all these different types of zombie. And I was like, that's a cool concept. Um, like, uh, uh, like the idea of obese Americans that when you touch them as a zombie, they explode on you. And um, <laughs> if you died smoking, you, you, you became like this smoker zombie that um, <laughs> yeah. choked everyone out. Um, so like zombie films as a, a market, there's certainly a lot of room for moving away. Because my, my quintessential zombie film is 28 Days Later um, because it changed, like the whole rage zombie changed how... how the dead were viewed and like the whole idea that you are still got your base idea of survival but like just the anger and the rage and like doesn't matter if an arm falls off you, you're still that that hunger whereas the romero zombies have sort of been done to death at this point if you excuse the pun yeah yeah we had a chat, then, didn't we, James, about whether 28 Days Later is genuinely a zombie film because they're actually infected with a virus it's a virus they? isn't it um mm. Yeah, I I I like the idea that the rage the rage virus kills you as a like a human. Um, so you're you're sort of operating under yeah. the virus, kind of like yeah. um, Resident Evil. Yeah. Like you 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 you're sort of dead in terms of the human part of you, um, and then everything else is sort of like is zombie version of you after that. Yeah, point. yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing with Twenty Eight Days Later was, it was such an instantaneous change, wasn't it? It was just a drop, yeah. and then you, and then you, and then you. Oh, done. I loved it. Um, uh, Bren, uh, Brendan Gleeson's death. Um, yeah, he looks up and the, he's the, only the barely got time eye. to talk to his daughter. Yeah, yeah, uh, th that was that was really good. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I do love a good zombie film. It is a bit yeah, of yeah, a likewise. Yeah, we're we're big fans. Of, we did Train to Busan on the podcast, didn't we, James? Loved that. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. loved it. I mean, especially I loved um, the, where they're making the barricade and he gets bitten on the arm and then he becomes part of the barricade um, and then uh, the bit where they get to the station at the end and they're running through because then I, I hate the idea of the American remake that's, that's just an awful idea oh they're remaking but, um, they're doing, oh fucking hell fuck off. yeah but it's it's going it's it's going to be um, kind of like a, well they're, they're well they're re remaking so many quintessential. Asian films as well because the yeah. raid is being remade as well. Oh. Um, yeah, and I mean uh, my my biggest issue with it because I, I studied Asian cinema and Old Boy was a terrible remake. Yeah, and I I can't actually think 
of any good remakes of Asian cinema that have worked. Um, like I, I, you only have to look at the Ring and go, well, that's that's exactly my point. Uh, that Ringu was always going to be better than the Ring. Yeah. Um, and Asian cinema knows how to do very good horror and even very good action. And that there's just no way that you can recreate it using American style. Yeah. You're kind of, it's amazing, Jane. It's like I coached you, but you've beautifully, <laughs> beautifully brought us through to the, the, the other thing that we, we asked you to do today, um, where uh, our, our listeners will know, and, and, and you'll, you'll be aware now, uh, Jamie, as well, that we, we have sort of regular features on our main podcast um, where we do various things every, uh, every month. The, the one we haven't asked you to do is the one that got away because that, that requires a lot more work. But um, we have uh, a classic, a film you've not, you know, not seen that you must get around to. And, and you, know, why, you know, sometimes it's about, you know, mental block. Well, that's such a classic. Well, you know, Citizen Kane, yep. I've heard that's brilliant. Will I like it? And you got it, you know, it's just about making yourself see it because, you know, you should see it just, just to experience it. The Hidden Gem, which is where you go into bat for a great film that you love, but other people don't seem to have caught on to. And the remake Hate Watch, which you've already kind of touched on there. So <laughs> would you would you indulge us, Jamie? And come 100%. On. Why, don't, why don't we start with the classic, a classic movie, a great film that you've not seen that you must get around to, that you've been thinking of getting around to and, ju- and just haven't yet. We have, we've got a list of about 140 that we're just plowing through. Oh, but uh, what, mine's what, at least that. Yeah. Have you, what, what, so you I'll, I'll caveat my answers because um, like, it, it works the other way as well. Because um, when people say, oh, what's your favourite film of all time? Like, I, don't ha- I can't have one. I have no, like, no. top 10 that yeah. interchanges. And like my top 10 films that uh, my all-time top 10 is like a mix of Fight Club, The First Matrix... Um, and uh, you, you sort of go and Aliens and Terminator 2 and Commando and you, it, you, it's never that one film at that one time whereas um, if we're talking about a classic that I haven't got round to um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the one and then I'll give my sort of honourable mentions but the, sure. the classic that I haven't fully got around to and I feel bad for it because I sort of bring him up as like a an exemplar for acting is There Will Be Blood uh-huh. um, because that that is... Um, Daniel Day Lewis at like his borderline most incredible, um, and it's it's one of those films where it's in everyone's top one hundred list and the 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 awards that it's got and for me it's just been in that blind spot of like mm-hmm. I really should be watching this like I, I I normally now watch reviews of everything to see whether it's worth a watch. Yeah, um, I know. Like spoiler-free reviews because I, I can't consume enough content. So, yeah, There Will Be Blood is my classic that I haven't got around to. Um, my honourable mentions were French Connection, um, Deer Hunter, and Twelve Angry Men. Oh, wow. Um, because that, those were, I was like, Deer Hunter, because there's so many De Niro films, I was like, I'm sure, like, <laughs> I've watched enough at this point. Um, and 12 Angry Men is just a classic where I, I, I saw Seven Psychopaths recently and I was like, surely this this is en- enough. I don't need to see 12 Angry Men. Um, so, yeah, th- those were my honourable mentions as well. Oh, very good. Have you have you seen There Will Be Blood, James? Yeah, I drink your milkshake. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing that, ever, especially on like film reviews, when like you've just got him screaming about drinking someone's milkshake, and it's just like, why, where, where is this coming from? Yeah, I it's have it's no what, idea what goes on in that film. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the meatiest sort of sort of heaviest Paul Thomas Anderson films. It's um, you know, there's films you can rewatch over and over again, and then there are other films like, say, Raging Bull, where as brilliant as it is, you don't necessarily feel like you could just stick it on. Mm. 
Um, exactly. I think there we bloody it's it's. I can see why you, why it would be in a blind spot because you've got to go right, clear the decks, turn off the phone. Yes. Make sure I've got a free afternoon to really properly watch this. Um, exactly. So yeah, we like that. We like that. Uh, that that's a perfect example of what we're talking about. And um, a hidden gem, right out for I, a film that other people <laughs> should love as much I, as you do. I have really got to go to bat for this one because I genuinely love it and it is in my top ten. And it's Idiocracy by John. Ah Hansen. yes, I have seen Idiocracy. And. I feel like we are as a this is going to sound like a grandiose statement, but I feel like as a society we are slowly stumbling toward idiocracy and we yes. don't even know it. Um, from the Terry Crews as president through to um, everyone just expecting things to be in your TV, in your in your sort of immediate outcome, everything being sponsored by a, a, like a, a brand. Everything about Idiocracy is starting to be summed up very quickly. And I think it took what they did in Demolition Man and just turned it up to 11. Yeah, yeah, and the, yeah. And the, the, the pastiche comedy of it really does work. Um, you have to go into it knowing full well that it is a single joke film. Yeah. And that, is, that, and that, is that people in the future are stupid. And that, that is the single line joke that is throughout the entire film. But it works. And... It launched a few people in terms of their comedy acting, um, and it it also more so now from a twenty twenty two perspective, it predicted a few things that have actually sort of come into pass. And so yeah, Idiocracy is it's in my top ten films, and that's my hidden gem. And I will go to bat with that on anyone that they should watch it first. Yeah, I think the beauty of that is, I mean, you've obviously you've heard the old, you know, story that the in the Kingdom of the Blind, the one-eyed man is king. Yes, that, that this debunks that idea because it's almost like in in a world where everyone's an idiot, it doesn't do you any good to be smart. No, exactly I thought that, that was. I thought that was. A, I don't know if you've seen that one, James. Idiocracy. Yeah. Um, no, but I know it's about a guy. It's sort of like Futurama. He wakes up in the future and yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah, completely changed. That's it. Yeah. No, I know all of it. Yeah, well, we, yeah, we might, we might I put mean, that the, on our Terry list. Crews as president um, and the whole the whole uh, Donald Trump thing that that sort of was yeah, a weird sort of coincide. Yeah, yeah, and then on top of that, um, all the brand, all the branding everywhere. I mean, yeah. I'm <laughs> apart from Under Armour, I'm I'm pretty much anti-brand. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the the idea of like Gatorade um, on on the crops um, and. You, that you can't get something around the FDA, so you just buy the FDA, yeah. and <laughs> um, ev- everything comes in a bucket, and all those sort of things. Where, yeah, we are stumbling towards this. This is pastiche comedy, and it's got better with time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. And and a remake, Hate Watch. This is uh, this oh my is God, this is where so we, oh I know one, yeah. this is where we get this is where we get. Stuck I I am so anti remake, and it, un- unless it was a missed opportunity, and unless they the producers or the studio genuinely screwed up a film i don't think remakes are ever necessary i don't think we are that creatively redundant at this point yet um that we can't make new cinema no you speak in our language but so the biggest one for me because i thought it was a huge miss opportunity and probably shouldn't have been made anyway was lion king um, yeah. I absolutely hated it. I I sat through three hours of CGI that were that was being called live action, and I was like, well, no, this is this is, this isn't live action. It's not actually a lion. It's not actually a warthog. It's not actually um, 
uh, a blue bird, a toucan. Um, so I, I I sat through it, and what was worse is they took out the best joke in the the cartoon. They took out the bit with Rafiki with "It's all in the past," and everything about Lion King I genuinely despised, and I came out of that film angry. Yeah, that is yeah. I mean, literally, you've you just... Am- Sorry, could you imagine if they actually tried to do live action with lions? <laughs> like, that <laughs> well, this, would make Rust look was... like the most well-oiled production you've ever seen. Oh, good, yeah. people would die every day. Well, trying to put the, the, the bit of peanut butter in the roof of the lion's mouth to make it look like it was talking. Like... <laughs> 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 but yeah, I, I, I hated the idea of people calling it li- live action because the only thing that was live action about it was the sets. Everything else didn't wasn't there. So I, I that, that, that for me, and it was also Disney just going, look what we can do. Not questioning whether they should have done it in the first place. Yeah. And I don't think any of the, the, the Disney remakes are worth the watch. I hated Beauty and the Beast. Um, it was badly cast, badly put together, um, borderline scary in places for kids. Because I was like, that lantern, that Ewan McGregor lantern looks awful. Um, and it, it's questions that we as kids probably didn't think about. Like, it only occurred to me recently why. Um, all, what, what all the broken furniture was in the cartoon and you're like oh that's dark that's really dark because um, yeah. all, all these things are people um yeah. so for me all the oh Disney shit remakes, sorry that just clocked on me as well <laughs> yeah that's what i mean when, when, when he says don't go into the west wing and it's like why and he's because he's killed people like i was like that's it that is dark um uh-huh. so yeah i hate all the disney remakes um my honorable mentions though um total recall because I don't believe oh. you should ever remake an Arnold Schwarzenegger film ever. Um, so yeah, um, actually, any Arnold you've, Schwarzenegger you've, you've, remake. You've already hit some big pillars of our yeah. of hated oh. remakes. Well, the thing is, like, I grew up on Schwarzenegger and eighties and nineties action. So, Commando, Predator, Total Recall, Last Action Hero, yeah. Sixth Day. Like the the, and that's not to mention Terminator. Um, the, these films, you don't need to remake them. Just watch them again. Because um, they, they've all pretty much withstood the test of time. I mean, Commando with the infinite magazine of ammunition, um, Predator with every one-liner you can think of, um, Last Action Hero where it took the mick out of itself, um, even down to Kindergarten Cop. I didn't realise until recently they made a Kindergarten Cop 2. Um, <laughs> and I was like, I'm not watching it, I refuse. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that Total Recall with Colin Farrell where I was like, you've missed the point of Total Recall. The whole point was, did he go or not? Like, is he on Mars? Is he not? Was he an agent? Was he not? Is it all going on in his head? Yeah. Um, and they missed the point of that completely. Uh, Ghostbusters, because um, I just thought it wasn't funny. Um, I, I, it's always it's always a bugbear for me when it's a reboot for the sake of a reboot. Yeah. Um, the So the 2018 Ghostbusters, I genuinely was... I'm not a big Melissa McCarthy fan anyway, but it just felt to me like the director went... Look, just shout things at the camera and we'll make a film about ghosts. And then the last yeah. one is Robocop. Um, yeah. Because make, remaking Paul Verhoeven films should not be allowed. Oh, I mean, the thing is the, the, the dark satire of Paul Verhoeven. Yeah. I, mean, it go, I mean, sometimes it goes over people's heads. I mean, a lot, I think a lot of people in America didn't realise how satirical Starship Troopers was. Mm. Well, and, uh, that's what I was about to say is next year Starship Troopers comes out. Oh, fucking hell. And it, I, I bet you any money it will be a dark, gritty, deadly serious film about vengeful bugs from another planet and it will have lost any pastiche. And it will probably be a 12A or PG-13. 
Yeah. That's God. the thing. And all the all of Paul Verhoeven's films, because I think when you're younger, the satire is lost because you don't have perspective. But yeah. None of them get worse with age. I Absolutely. Mean, not, count, not counting Robocop 3 and 4 and the director-video ones. Well, you can't, you can't blame him two. for those. No. But certainly 1 and 2, where you go, oh, this is meant to be dark and satirical and it's meant to make a point yeah um but yeah so the the remake i mean <clears throat> it didn't need samuel l jackson it didn't need the human hand it none of it it was yeah. it was like um it was like right how how can we make this less funny less action centric and actually make us care less for the character i know because I, I, I don't think he's a good we, actor either uh joel kinnaman he annoys me if he's if he's not given a very tight box to work in. Yeah, I know what you mean. I liked him in um, Altered Carbon. Um, yes, but, but there look, it's like. But then you're bouncing off very good actors. In yeah, that. yeah. I mean, the thing is, act, actors for me are like are like football. It's not all of them can play the free role. Some of yeah. them have to do. You know, some of them have to stick to their position. Yeah, Joel Kinnaman should never be your false nine. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Perfect. Like he perfect needs perfect he analogy. needs he needs to be stuck out as a number eleven and just ship the ball doing, to him doing his job. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like he he's. I mean, I I didn't mind him in Suicide Squad. Like I I actually thought, you know what, this this works. Like you, yeah. you've got a very tight box to work in here, and you you can do that. And he was all right in um. Oh, I got bored on Netflix, and I put on The Informer. All right. And it's not bad because the idea is is um, how far can you be pushed as an informant? Like how far down the rabbit hole do you have to go before you're a free man again? Yeah. And the idea of like you're forced in you're already sort of pigeonholed because of illegal activity and then you're forced to do more illegal activity that pushes you further down the hole yeah um so that that for me is where he sort of comes into his own but as yeah. robocop it was like uh, you're, you're not you're not peter weller so. no yeah i think they underrated <laughs> what peter weller actually did with that role interesting they were originally talking about rutger hauer being robocop mm. before they chose peter weller he's another one who i think is underrated in what he can actually do oh, with the performance. you only got to look at blade runner oh absolutely um, and i mean everyone sort of waxes lyrical about harrison and how amazing he is but yeah, rutger Hauer just everything that he put his mind to on films like that it just worked yeah, I mean, I mean, I see. I I'm older than both of you on on this on this podcast. I mean, I remember Rutger Hauer when he was just this absolute stalwart of, um, like B movies. He would do yes. something big like like Blade Runner, and then he'd be in stuff like The Hitcher and Wanted Dead or Alive. And I'm probably one of the only people, me and my me and my mate uh, from school, who who actually went to see a film called Split Second at the cinema because that is a straight to video or st nowadays straight oh, to streaming film, it's legit B movie stuff. But but it's just like Rutger Howard just does something beautiful with that stuff, doesn't he? Well, there's one one that came back to me a while back, and I use it as a perfect example of like a concept that works was hobo with a shotgun yes um and like that was a that was my sort of go-to example of like character on the fringes now how do we make this a little bit edgy mm -hmm. and it, it, it's traveled quite well it's, it it didn't look like it was out of place um and yeah he he sort of let that character sit and be and let the actual story work rather than overselling it um but it's weird because you forget that Rutger Hauer was in like Batman and um, uh, Sin City. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Like character acting in films, and it, it, again underrated. 
Absolutely. He was in the first episode of The Last Kingdom, which was... Um, that's I don't know cool. if you guys have seen that, but he's in I the first episode of that um, of the first season, and he just plays this sort of like well, I don't know what they would call them back in those times. It's sort of like a soothsayer, like they're yeah, yeah, they're kind of I don't know the right. They, they've probably got some bizarre Scandinavian word for him, and he's yeah, he's just you wouldn't expect him. You wouldn't expect him to be in like because when that show started, it was quite not small, small, but like you know, it wasn't Game of Thrones kind of budget, and he's just in there playing a guy who likes to drink the water that's basically what yeah. what he's doing in that film um to continue yeah. on with the feature song this isn't a feature that we do but i think we might be introducing it hint hint nudge nudge um, <laughs> I, I will make i will make a note in in the upcoming podcast of i'm right dad we're going to be doing sort of films that we want to see redone yeah that's so, not not remade but redo to get it right this time so, exactly so, what yeah, we're so, talking about ridley scott getting alien three so right there's a film that that for I'm I'm going to be talking about I know you were in it but I'm going to be talking about Star Wars and how I think they should have done certain things. So is there any film that you saw that you watched and thought there's potential in there but it was shit and they did it badly? I want them to go back and redo all the Transformers films. But straight straight off the top of my head, um, I hate what Michael Bay did with all of those films. Um, I don't like the idea of the Autobots as like hunter death killers and the the idea of um it is for want of a better phrase absolutely ruining people's childhoods um so yeah I'd, I'd like them to go back and redo that um just just because it it could be done so much better yeah um there there was um uh there was a Jason Statham film um it was like Dungeons and Dragons and I thought you've totally missed the point oh I know this. the one you mean yeah, and I was uh, it's like the last king or something like that, or the last of the king. In the name of the king. That's it. In the name of the king, and I was like, "You've missed the point." And this can be done, and it can be done well, but just stop using actors that can't do it. Um, so yeah, th- those those off the top of my head, definitely. Um, and then there's things like um, all the Universal monsters um, need to need. Need oh, modern like the the mummy and that the, yeah the yeah, the mummy needs to be taken away from Universal in terms of a studio they 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 <laughs> should be the ones like distributing but should not be because I, I think the idea of I liked the idea of the invisible suit invisible man well, that, that was a cool idea but again that's not the traditional monster um, so yeah th- those would be ones where it's like yeah definitely. Um, and then, then there's there's ones that were just executed badly. Um, I am Legend. I didn't like. Um, Do you think that film would have been better if they'd used the other ending? Yes, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, the um, you see, there's been a couple of versions of that film, and and uh, do- doubling down on the on the geekdom, I I've I've read the book as well. A guy called Richard Matheson, who basically, you know, Stephen King has a lot to thank him for, which he you know freely admits in all his interviews. And in the in at least one of the other versions of the film and in the book, the 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 the, the, the vampires or whatever they are, they actually um, they talk. They have their own yeah. you know feelings and thoughts and and views of 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 that main character. And I think there's a lot. Um, they took so much of the uh, what was interesting out of that story for the Will Smith version, didn't they? Mm. Yeah, I think it was very cookie cutter. Again, monsters in the dark. Um, vampire horror and they didn't actually look at the source material and go well the whole point is do one do they want a cure and two should he be trying to push the cure on them 
Yeah. Um, I mean, the best part of it was actually um, how he reacted to the death of the, his dog. That yeah. was that was possibly the most sort of heart wrenching part of that scene yeah. um, of the film. But yeah, I think if they use a different ending, I don't think people would be as uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, I think the assault on his house works really well, but it, it's one of those where um, it could have been done better. Um, yeah. But it's the same as like any. Again, my my sort of geekness is coming out here. Um, I would have said anything that's based on the nineteen eighties or nineteen nineties cartoon should be redone and put in the hands of people that can actually handle it. Yeah. GI Joe was awful, um, and I'm a huge GI Joe fan, but I thought the first one was just garbage. And tr- trying to get the Rock to save a franchise seems to be like the go to. Yeah, now. yeah. We'll, we'll just pay the Rock a hundred million to save this franchise. Um, yeah. And he wasn't bad as Roadblock, but again, it was too late. The damage was done. Um, Transformers, like I said. Uh, so yeah, th- those monsters in the Universal Monsters and anything from the 1980s and 1990s that was based on nostalgia. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. So, Jamie, thank you very much for everything you've shared with us today. Just a reminder, Morris Men's World premiere is on October the 29th. That's right. You believe there's going to be maybe a limited release and then it's going to be on a streaming platform, but it's going to go to the highest bidder, so we'll keep an eye out for that. (laughs) James James and I will certainly be talking about it on the show, having having been introduced to it, but thank you very much for that. Um, Any other upcoming things you wanted to to mention before we go? Yeah, uh, from the producer side of things, um, we have a relatively big feature film coming out that is, again, going to streaming uh, called The Beast. And that is with Eddie Hall and Arnold Schwarzenegger, as well as a few other big names um, that have... Essentially, the idea of the film is it's a docudrama about the transition from elite sport to entertainment. Yeah. And also um, the the mental health and the weight of mental health when you are elite and how you cope with fame, fortune, adversity... And also what happens when you transition from being the best at what you do. Um, The examples being, obviously, Arnold Schwarzenegger being Mr. Olympia and then doing Hercules in New York. Yeah. uh, And essentially going down to the bottom of the barrel and, oh, no, your Austrian accent doesn't work, so we're going to dub you. Um, You'll never make it as a leading man and how you overcome that adversity. And then we've sort of looked at Carl Weathers, Jason Statham, Vinnie Jones, um, and then obviously more recently Dwayne Johnson and John Cena, where the transition has been a lot smoother, I would yeah. say. Um, so yeah, uh, so that's that's quite a big one for us because oh, wow. it's it's also the the message behind it is we want people to talk about this and we want to talk about the fact that it doesn't matter what world you come from or what industry you're in that transition and that dealing with either positives, negatives or indifference, it affects everyone. Um, So that's a huge one for us. Um, And we're we're sort of really keen for that to not just be uh, a cookie cutter documentary, but like a talking point for people. Um, And to sort of go, it doesn't matter if you're the world's strongest man, you still deal with mental health issues. Um, It doesn't matter if you're um, Arnold Schwarzenegger and you're in the public subconscious for the last 50 years, um, you know, sort of last 30 years, um, everyone on the street knows who Schwarzenegger is, but he had to transition from one place to another. And then he did it again, transitioning from film to governor. Yeah. Um, so. And, no, and that, never being taken seriously to begin with yeah, and having to kind of and get across that. I think 
it's insane now to consider Schwarzenegger as not being a household name. Um, but when you look at um, Hercules in New York, the first Conan, no one was ever going to take him seriously. And then he, he goes and does what I like to call a monster in the dark film. And Terminator was never meant to be a breakout for anyone. Mm-hmm. And yet, they they plowed money into it. They changed things around, and they backed the idea of Arnold over O.J. Simpson because no one could possibly have thought O.J. Simpson would be a yeah, uh, killer, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, I I love the idea of making that a discussion point where you're not judging your beginning by other people's middle and other people's end, and it's something where you can watch it, you can pause it, and you can go, let's talk about that, yeah, and talk about dreams aspirations and then okay uh you you haven't you haven't made it at this point but does that mean that you can't take a sideways turn and carry on um as opposed to stopping and restarting well, so terrific. That's we'll be, for us. Well, terrific we'll be looking out for that and um creatively wise uh we also um we have a film called killer's romance which is about hitmen chasing down other hitmen and taking out bounties on each other nice so that that's going to be a lot of fun uh, that's just that's just gone for script um essentially script tidying and script management um and then we are looking to shoot our western out in romania um which is is really cool um it's the idea of it being an allegory for modern gun crime yeah and the idea of introducing into pre-frontier western cities firearms and what how that changes society so some Very some good. really big fun yeah, projects lots of, coming lots up of stuff coming up yeah well, it's gonna be loads of fun well brilliant well jamie thank you very much uh no, thank you guys uh, james awesome. thank you for joining me um no, and we will we will be speaking to our audience uh, again with our with our regular episode 30 coming up towards the end of the month um we'll be putting this uh, episode out soon so watch out for it in your feeds um, which is a redundant thing to say because by the time people hear that, they'll already have found it. I really need to think these things through. <laughs> no, I'll be tuning in. It's going to be awesome. Nice one. Thank you very much to my co-host James and to Jamie Chambers. Uh, this was our special episode about uh, Jamie Chambers' new film, Morris Men, and his other projects. Uh, look out for our next episode. Uh, and in the meantime, we'll speak to you soon. The music was uh, Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>